that we and the whole world may perceive the glory of His marvelous works, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Welcome back. Um, We are in Acts chapter 9 today. About halfway through the chapter, we're going to start at verse 32 today, a little more than halfway through the chapter, actually. Acts chapter 9, beginning at verse 32, and we're going to take it through the end of the chapter. So let's just go ahead and read these verses, and then we'll come back and take a look at them in detail. Now, as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. And there he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas... Jesus Christ heals you, rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose, and all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died, and when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, Please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up, and he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then, calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. Um, Acts chapter 9, this latter part of Acts chapter 9, is an interesting section. If for no other reason, then it seems a little bit out of place. Uh, We have, for the past several weeks, been talking now about the ministry of the Apostle Paul. We talked about Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus, and then we talked about Paul's first preaching there in Damascus. And so you would expect that now, having been introduced to the Apostle Paul in a big way, that the rest of the book of Acts would focus on Paul's ministry. And actually, that's not what happens. In fact, it's almost as though the camera pans back now, away from Paul, to Peter. And we're not going to begin to discuss Paul's ministry in earnest until the 13th chapter of the book of Acts. And so you have to sort of pause and ask yourself, well, what is Luke doing here? Uh, Why does he do this? Uh, I say it's almost like one of those old westerns that you used to see, where they'd have a bit of a narrator or there would be words at the bottom of the screen, and you'd be watching something and there'd be some very exciting part, and then they would break away and they would say, meanwhile, back at the ranch. (laughs) And, And that's almost the impression that you get here. Paul, very exciting, very dramatic, and then, meanwhile, back at the ranch with Peter and the other apostles. What exactly is Luke doing here in Acts chapter 9 in this latter part? Why is it that he pans back now to Peter and more of Peter's ministry? I think there are two reasons for this. I think one of the reasons is simple chronology. Luke is very accurate in the record that he gives to us. 
And we do know that after his conversion, the Apostle Paul did not immediately become one of the apostolic band. We know that the Apostle Paul went away for perhaps up to three years into Arabia and other parts before he reappeared in Jerusalem and then began his ministry in earnest at the church in Antioch of Syria. So while Paul did preach initially, we do know that there was much that he didn't understand. Uh, That conversion, that encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus was a jarring experience for Paul, and he knew that there was much that he needed to reevaluate and needed to understand. And so for some time he went and he studied the scriptures before he really began a ministry in a very popular and powerful way. So I think one of the reasons why we pan back to Peter and the others is because that's exactly what happened. And Luke wants us to understand that. Paul is going to fade out of the picture. He will reappear at a later point, but right now he is out of the picture to some degree. I think the other reason that Peter does, or that Luke does this, is because he wants to emphasize that Paul and Peter were actually overlapping in some of their work. You know, we have a tendency to think that Paul was the apostle who ministered almost exclusively to who? To the Gentiles. And Peter was the one who ministered almost exclusively what? To the Jews. And indeed, you can almost divide the book of Acts in part between the ministry of Peter and the ministry of Paul. And the first part of the book does seem to concentrate almost exclusively on Jewish ministry in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria. And then the latter part of the book deals with that last part of the Great Commission that Jesus gives in Acts chapter 1, where Paul takes the good news to the ends of the earth, to Gentiles and Ephesus and Philippi and Rome, etc. So you can almost make that argument. But Luke is making it very clear, it seems to me, that these two men did not concentrate exclusively on Jews or on Gentiles, but on all people. While they would certainly have a concentration, they didn't exclusively concentrate on just those two people. Uh, At the latter part of the 19th century, um, a lot of German scholarship uh, began to argue that you could divide up or understand Christian theology in terms of what was known as the historical dialectic. This is a little heavy stuff, but just you're familiar with it, so hang in there with me. There was a fellow by the name of Georg Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel. And Hegel came up with, you know, Germans have wonderful names, and he came up with this idea that there was a prominent notion. It's a theory. There's a prominent idea, which he called a thesis. And, And every great intellectual movement begins with a thesis, with an idea. And then he says there eventually appears on the scene a rival theory or a rival idea, which he called the antithesis or the antithesis. And he said these two ideas, these two rival ideas, then battle it out, and eventually what results is a mixture of the two, which he called synthesis. All right, synthesis. Now you have to understand there is a certain thoroughness the German mindset. And when they find a willing idea, this was particularly true among the German scholars of the last century, when they found a willing idea, what they wanted to do was to apply it to every aspect of life. I think a great example of this is what we find with Darwinism. Um, Darwinism, of course, started off really as just a, a theory, a scientific theory Uh, about the origins and the development of life. Really, not even so much the origins, but rather the development of life. 
And it became the winning theory in the latter part of the 19th century. But what many people wanted to do was to take a provisional scientific theory and do what with it? Apply it to every aspect of life. Take Darwin's idea of survival of the fittest and simply overlay it on every aspect of life. And the result is what we call social Darwinism today. Taking that provisional scientific theory and laying it over on social aspects of life. Well, that's what the Germans like to do. And that's exactly what one German biblical scholar by the name of Ferdinand Bauer decided to do with this idea of the historical dialectic. He was going to take this idea of thesis versus the antithesis resulting in the synthesis and apply it to the early Christian church. And so what he saw was that there was an original idea, an original, very primitive form of Christianity, which sort of centered around the person of the Apostle Peter. And then later on, what happened was there appeared this sort of rival Christianity, a robust rival Christianity, which sort of centered around the idea of the Apostle Paul. And these two great forms of Christianity went head-to-head, toe-to-toe, they battled it out. And he even makes reference to the fact that Peter and Paul did have a disagreement at the First Church Council. And so he makes this big argument that they battled it out, and the result was sort of a blending of Pauline Christianity and Petrine Christianity, which eventually became Catholic Christianity. Now that's the argument. Thesis versus antithesis equals synthesis. Well, one of the reasons I bring that to your attention is because here in Acts chapter 9, verses 32 and following, that whole idea is completely destroyed. Because what we find here are not two men with two rival forms of Christianity. Paul with his Gentile form of Christianity, Peter with his Jewish form of Christianity, and the result being some sort of Catholic Christianity. Instead, what we find is overlap. Here's an interesting thing to consider. If I were to ask you the question, who was the first apostle to open the door of salvation to the Gentiles, having not heard what I just said to you, who would you assume that would be? We would assume it would be Paul. What we're going to discover here in the book of Acts is that the first person to preach the gospel to the Gentiles was not Paul. It was Peter. And when Paul first started to preach the gospel, who did he preach to? Well, ironically, not to the Gentiles, but to his own people, to the Jews. So I think the other reason why Luke emphasizes this return to Peter's ministry, having panned away from Paul, is that it's not only because of chronology, but he wants us to understand that there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism between the apostles, and there is one task. And that task is to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And that is exactly what we see happening here. Notice how the section begins. Now, as Peter went here and there, among them all. Uh, You know, Jesus told his disciples that they were going to be his witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and finally to the ends of the earth. But if you read through these first ten chapters of the book of Acts, you'll notice that the apostles, the other apostles, the other eleven, pretty much confined their efforts to Jerusalem. We have no record of them really going out any further than Jerusalem. Now, other people did. 
The early deacons did. We've already seen with Philip that he went to up north, and then he went south on that desert road going down from Jerusalem. But the apostles, as far as we can tell, pretty much stayed in Jerusalem, which I think was the wrong thing to do. Well, I do. Why? Because Jesus told them to go out. So I think it's at least to Peter's credit that we begin this section with hearing that he went here and there among them all. He did not confine himself to Jerusalem, but in fulfillment of Jesus' words, he was traveling, visiting the various Christian communities. And we're beginning to see, as we read through this section, how Peter is growing. And that's one of the things that I want you to, em- to emphasize to you today. It's one of the things that I want you to notice, that Peter is growing into his role as an apostle. He's beginning to understand uh, what he has really been called to do and what it means to be a follower, a follower of Jesus Christ. So the story tells us that as he was going from here and there, he traveled up to a place called Lydda. Uh, the gospel had spread into Samaria. And we've already talked about the Samaritans. We said that it was very courageous for Philip to go among the Samaritans. Why? Because the Samaritans were the sworn enemies of the Jewish people. Well, Lydda is right up there on Samaritan territory. So we're beginning to see the apostles themselves, Peter in particular, venturing out from there. And he comes to this town of Lydda, where he finds a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. Now, when I read through this story, it immediately reminds me of a similar story in Mark chapter 2. So keep your finger there in Acts and flip over for just a moment to Mark chapter 2. In Mark chapter 2, beginning at verse 1, we read this. And when Jesus returned to Capernaum after several days, it was reported that he was at home, and many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And as he was preaching the word to them, they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. Peter was there for these events. Peter's been called in because somebody is sick. Obviously, they want Peter to what? Heal the man. Now, probably going through Peter's mind at this point is, how do I do that? Now, he has already been healing people. But what I think is interesting is the way that he does it. He does it almost exactly the same way that Jesus did it. Uh, There's another occasion in John's Gospel where Jesus was uh, in Jerusalem near the pool of Bethesda, uh, which is now near St. Anne's Church in Jerusalem. Those of you who are going to the Holy Land, you're going to have an opportunity to actually be there on site at this very place. We know it is actually the pool because they've done the excavations, a pool with seven covered colonnades. At any rate, this is where it took place, and we're told that in this place there were many people, the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed is how John describes it. And there was this pool that had been built over what was probably an artesian well or spring, and the water bubbled up, and people believed that the water was being stirred by an angel. And if you were the first one into the water, then you would be healed. And Jesus is walking along. I always imagine him, all these people crowded around in this place, And there's a man way in the back, 
shoved to the back. He's paralyzed, and Jesus comes up to him and he says, Do you want to be made well? I've always thought that was an interesting question. Of course he wants to be made well. After all, why would he be there? But you know, it's not such a ridiculous question at all. There are many people who say they want to be healed physically, spiritually, but they really don't. They know they should want to be healed, but they also realize that if they are healed, it what? It necessitates a change in their life. Do you ever realize that? That if God comes into your life, it necessitates a change? That if you say, I want Christ to come in and save me, He's going to save you, but He's going to change you. Sometimes we don't want to change, do we? So Jesus asked the man, do you want to be healed? And the man says, I can't get into the water. That wasn't the question, was it? The question was, can't you get into the water? I'm not worried about the water. I want to know, do you want to be healed? And what does Jesus say to the man? He says, rise, take up your mat, and walk. Now, why does Jesus say, rise, take up your mat? He could have simply said, rise and walk. He said, rise, take up your mat. Why? Because you're not going back here. You're not returning to this mat. I'm going to change you, and it's going to be a change forever. Well, isn't it interesting that in these cases of the healing of the paralytic, something very similar happens here with Peter. And there he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you, not I, but Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and what? Make your bed. Which is to say, take your bed. We are not returning here again. This is a new day for you. So I want you to notice that Peter is beginning to act as an apostle. He is healing people, but he's not healing people in his own unique way. He is healing people in the same way that Jesus healed people. He's following hard after the Lord. We have a similar situation in the rest of the story. Now there was in Joppa, we're told that the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him and they returned to the Lord. And now he went on to Joppa which is, by the way, modern-day Jaffa, Jaffa along the coast. Now, there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. And she was full of good works and acts of charity. And in those days, she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in the upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men, urging him, Please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them, and when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. Now, does that story sound familiar to you? Well, it should, because it sounds just like the raising of Jairus' daughter from the dead. Uh, turn, if you will, um, to first, well, let's turn first to Mark chapter 5. I just want you to read the story and listen again. Mark chapter 5. We're going to start at verse 21. 
And when Jesus had crossed again to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name. And seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, so that she may be made well and live. And he went with them. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for twelve years, and who had suffered much under many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus, and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For, he said, for she said, if I touch his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Now look at the next verse. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? So here's the scenario. Uh, Jesus is making his way along. He's passed to the other side of the sea. This powerful man, important man, a ruler of the synagogue, Jairus by name, comes up to him. He knows that Jesus is a great miracle worker, and he says, my daughter is at the point of death. Now, he's probably not convinced that Jesus is the Messiah, but he's heard the rumors, and he's desperate. And so he comes up to Jesus, and he says, my daughter is at the point of death. Will you please come? And Jesus says, I will. Now, as he's making his way, he's going through a crowded street, and I always imagined it's a street very much like going through the market down here, at the height of the tourist season. And there is this woman who is afflicted with some sort of bleeding disorder. We don't know exactly what it was, but any kind of discharge like this would have made a person ritually unclean. Which, by the way, is the reason why when Jesus told the parable of the Good Samaritan, the man who was beaten by the side of the road, the priest and the Levite passed by on the other side because they were on their way where? To Jerusalem to worship. And if they touched a man who had been bleeding, they would have been ritually unclean and they could not worship. That, that, that's sort of the, the whole message upon which the story turns. So this woman has been unclean. She is an outcast And I love the King James Version. It says she had suffered much under the care of many physicians. She had suffered much under the care of many of the physicians. And now she comes to the great physician. She's convinced that if she merely touches the hem of his cloak, she will be healed. And so she reaches out. She touches Jesus. He's in this crowd of people, and he turns around. And just imagine somebody doing this in the marketplace at the height of the tourist season. Who touched me? And everybody would have drawn back, and his disciples are, hey, hey, keep it down. Shh. Every, what do you mean? Who touched you? Everybody touched you. Stop. Stop it. And Jesus said, no, somebody touched me. And so he has this encounter with the woman. Now, what do you think Jairus is doing at this point? Getting itchy. I, at least. He's anxious. His daughter is at the point of death. He got to Jesus first. And now Jesus is dealing with this woman. Well, you come back and deal with her, but now you've got to come and you've got to help me. But while he's still talking to the woman, word comes that the girl has died. There is no need to trouble the teacher anymore. 
So let's go on and read. Verse 36. But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. What happens when Peter gets to Joppa? He gets there and he finds all these people what? Weeping and wailing and you know, moaning and pulling out all of these beautiful garments that Dorcas had made and showing them. And it seems hopeless. And that's the situation here. It's hopeless. There's a commotion. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he did what? He put them all outside. What did Peter do? When he got there and he saw those people weeping and wailing and making a commotion, he did what? He put them outside. And where do you think he learned to do that? He learned it from Jesus. And he took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. And taking her what? By the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. When Peter went in and having put everybody else, what did he say to Dorcas? Took her by the hand. He said, Tabitha, arise, get up. Verse 42 in Mark says, and immediately the little girl got up. And the book of Acts says, immediately Tabitha, Dorcas, opened her eyes and saw Peter. And she sat up. I want you to notice that Peter is growing. He's beginning to understand that he does not do this in and of his own power. To some degree, he already understood that, of course. What I think is so powerful is that Peter, as an apostle, is acting just as Jesus acted. He didn't just use some sort of formula. He did it precisely the way that Jesus did it. He was following hard in the footsteps of the Lord. I think that's so important because if you think about it, Peter really is an unlikely vessel, isn't he? You begin to see at this point in the book of Acts how far Peter has really come. We've talked about how God used somebody like the Apostle Paul, an unlikely vessel. But Peter was an unlikely vessel as well. Just think about how Peter began. It was an inauspicious start. Turn, if you will, to Luke chapter 5 for just a moment. Luke chapter 5. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake. But the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put it out a little bit further from the land. And he sat down and he taught the people. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, We toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. Now, this is a very sanitized version of the story right here. I'm going to tell you how it really happened. (laughs) Jesus said to Peter, Peter, I want you to put your nets out, and uh, you're going to, we've got to have something to eat here. There are people here. Uh, Put your boats out and let down your nets, and we're going to catch some fish. 
And Peter says, we've been out all night long. And Jesus, Jesus said, well, just, just, just trust me, Peter. And you can almost hear Peter groan. Okay. Uh, what, was it that you, what was it that you did before you started this ministry? You worked in a carpenter shop, wasn't it? And, 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 and you know what I did for a living? I, I've been a fisherman on these waters forever. My father was a fisherman. My brother's a fisherman. We were all fishermen. We know when to fish. We know where to fish. We know how to fish. But because you say so, Mr. Carpenter, we'll go ahead and let down our nets. You can get that from the story if you use your imagination a little bit. It's almost as though Peter is saying, I'll show you. Now, you think, well, Miller's just exaggerating. He's reading into the text. We know this is how it happened because of Peter's response. And Simon answered, Master, we've told all night and took nothing, but at your word, I'll let down the nets. Verse 6, and when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking, and they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, What? Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. That's how we know that's how this story happened. There would have been no reason if he was just in league with Jesus to fall at the Lord's feet, but he knew that he had doubted. He knew that he had argued with the Lord. And when it happened, he fell at the Lord's feet and he says, oh, depart from me. I am a sinful man. I am not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under thy table. Now you think to yourself, if you're Jesus, yeah, I'm not so sure about Peter. I'm not so sure, sure we're going to start out with you. Let's see if we can work with somebody else. It was an inauspicious beginning. And I'd like to say that he learned from this experience. But the Gospels indicate that that was not necessarily the case. Take a look at Matthew chapter 16 for just a moment. Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 and following. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Again, those of you who are going to the Holy Land in the spring, you're going to go to Caesarea Philippi. I find it to be one of the most beautiful and also one of the most fascinating places that we visit in the Holy Land. It's far north of Galilee, actually. Uh, It really wasn't even in Israel of that day. It was beyond the border. It's at the foot of Mount Hermon at the headwaters of the Jordan River. And it was a place that in ancient times had been where people had worshipped the pagan god Pan. They had worshipped Pan. And at the time of Jesus, it had been rebuilt by Philip the Tetrarch, and uh, he had rebuilt it in honor of himself and in honor of Caesar, hence the name Caesarea Philippi. And it was basically a playpen for the rich. It was a place that was uh, characterized by all kinds of idol worship, all kinds of different gods. Those of you who have seen the Indiana Jones Last Crusade movie, you've seen Petra, with all of those niches carved into the wall and the buildings. Well, this is a miniature version of Petra. 
you'll see that here. Uh, when you go up here to Banyos, or what is Caesarea Philippi then, and you will see these places where they had all these idol worships. It was also a center of the cult of emperor worship. So it was a very pagan place, all kinds of gods, all kinds of deities. It was a very odd place for Jesus to take his disciples. Most Jews would never venture out of Galilean territory, let alone go to Caesarea Philippi. I think Jesus did that for a very specific reason, because it's against that background of all these other gods, all these other deities, that Jesus asks this specific question, who do men say that I am? And what you'll notice is how they responded. There's no hesitation. And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But then Jesus gets very personal, and he said to them, but who do you say? that I am. And all of a sudden, everybody clams up. Except for Peter. And Peter cries out, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. And you think to yourself, ah, Peter learned the lesson. He got it. He learned that lesson by the Sea of Galilee. But I always say, Peter's the man, at least at this point in his life, that always manages to pass the test and still flunk the course. Because look at verses 21 and following. And from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem. You're right. I am the Messiah. I am the Son of God. You are absolutely correct. This has not been revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And now let me tell you what it means to be the Messiah. I'm going to have to go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders chief priests and scribes, and be killed. And on the third day, rise again. Verse 22, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. That's a very powerful word, rebuke. I always imagine Peter, and I love Peter, by the way. I, I, Paul's my hero, but Peter's the one I relate to. And I just think of Peter thinking to himself, now, wait a minute, I had a flash of insight here. Jesus is a little off track. I'll straighten him out here. Because he began to rebuke him. He's rebuking the Lord. Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. The highest praise, moments later, the sternest rebuke. Passing the test, flunking the course. Now you think to yourself, well, he'll learn from that. (laughs) But does he? Because then we come to the lowest point of all. Turn, if you will, to Luke chapter 22. You know the story, but I want to paint the picture for you. So bear with me. Luke chapter 22. 
And this is Jesus. Jesus speaking to Peter, beginning at verse 31. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Jesus is saying, Peter, you are in a vulnerable position. You're weak. You're vacillating. But I've been praying for you. And instead of saying, thank you, Peter says, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And it's almost as though you can see Jesus give himself a... Peter, let me put it to you plainly, Peter. Before the rooster crows this day, you will deny me three times. And of course, Peter says, no, Lord, not me. I always imagine him saying, it'll probably be James. You know how James is. Or it might be John, but it, it won't be me. Well, fast forward just a little bit. Verse 54, same chapter. Then they seized Jesus and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. And then a servant girl, this is a little girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, this man also was with him. But he denied it, saying, woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, you also are one of them. But Peter said, man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, certainly this man also was with them. He too is a Galilean. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. This took place at the palace of the high priest Caiaphas. And when you go to the Holy Land, it's to me one of the most moving places because the first century stairs leading from the valley below to the palace where there is now a church are still there. The very stairs that Jesus was led up, bound. You can still see them there today. And you can see the courtyard where Peter would have been warming himself. The church that is built over that place is called St. Peter of the Giligantu. St. Peter of the Cock Crow. This is where it took place. The low point. And look at what the text says. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. But it doesn't end there. Go to John chapter 21. Now Jesus had told Peter, way back in Caesarea Philippi, that all of this was going to happen, right? I mean, he had seen Jesus do all of these miracles And Jesus had specifically told him, to be the Messiah means that I have to go where? To Jerusalem, be betrayed at the hands of my own people. Now, ask yourself, had he gone to Jerusalem? Yes. Had he been betrayed at the hands of his own people? He said, I will be crucified. Well, was he crucified? Yes. And on the third day, what's going to happen to me? 
I will be raised. Now, that's what Jesus had said to Peter at Caesarea Philippi. You would have thought that by this point, Peter would start to get the message and say, okay. So that after the crucifixion, you would think that he would be waiting, waiting with anticipation for what? For the resurrection. Now, we know that none of the others did. Peter was no exception to this. But still, Peter, because he's going to become the leader of the apostles, you would have thought that at least he would have been sitting on pins and needles wondering if perhaps. Look at John chapter 21, verses 15. Excuse me, not that one. John chapter 20, verses 1 through 9. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to who? Well, to Simon Peter and the other disciple. Who's the other disciple? The other disciple is John, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. I I love that. Because I don't don't know how you picture Peter and how you picture John. John's the young guy. So he's svelte, and he's energetic, you know. He's he's the young one. And so they start off running, and he just dashes off. And poor Peter, he's got a little bit of a paunch. And, And he's getting there, and he arrives wheezing. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. So John gets there first, running ahead. He gets there, but he's a little afraid to look in. He just kind of peeks in and he sees the linen cloths, but he doesn't go in. You know, graveyards can be creepy places, especially in, in the darkness. And this was still dark. It was early in the morning. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and what? No hesitation on the part of Peter. I imagine him pushing John right out of the way and into the tomb. And he saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. There are three Greek words that when they're translated into English are all translated as our word saw. The common word in Greek for saw is blepo. It means just to see something, to observe it. Then there are two other words. The second word is theoreo, from which we get the term theorize. And then there is the word oreo, which means to see with understanding. If you read this in the original language, Here's what you see. Peter, what first happens is John arrives at the tomb and looks in. The Greek word is blepo. He sees the linen cloths. There's a gwyn. Just observe them. Peter arrives, and we're told Saul went in and saw the linen cloths. And the Greek word here is theoreo, which means he goes in and he sees them, and he begins to try to figure out in his mind what has happened here. All right, who's taken the body? What's happened here? Have the Romans taken it? What's going on? He's trying to theorize, come up with an explanation as to what has happened. Then we're told John goes in and this time sees, and the Greek word is oreo. That's why it's translated sees and believes. 
Now, you would have expected that would have been Peter when he went in. He would have seen and what? Believed. But he didn't. He went in and he's thinking to himself, I don't know what's happened here. He doesn't immediately assume, well, Jesus has been raised from the dead because that's what he told us he was going to do. Oh, no. Peter's still trying with his own human mind to figure it all out. How many of you have ever felt like Peter in your life? How many of you have ever felt like you just can't get it? And you worry, is God going to be done with me? Is God going to throw me off saying I'm going to move on to somebody else? Peter's an encouragement because we discover that God never does that. Turn a page in your Bible to John chapter 21 now. This is after the resurrection. Peter and the disciples are up on the Sea of Galilee fishing. They realize it's Jesus there on the shore. Peter dives into the water, swims to shore, and Jesus has breakfast for them. And we have this marvelous story. took place at a place called Tabga. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, they've had breakfast, they're excited to see the Lord. It's after the resurrection. They're delighted that he's with them again. Everything has been changed from sorrow to joy to ecstasy. And they're sitting there around that fire and they're having that fish and they're reminiscing about times and Jesus is teaching them. And it's just marvelous. And when they had finished breakfast, Jesus suddenly turns to Simon Peter and he says, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And Peter said to him, yes, Lord, you know I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. And he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to them, then tend my sheep. And he said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, then feed my sheep. Here again, the Greek language is a little helpful. If you've read C.S. Lewis's The Four Loves, then you know that there are four Greek words that when they're translated into English are all translated as our word love. Um, One is the Greek word storge, which means homely affection. I always say it's the kind of affection that a man has for his golden retriever. Then there is the Greek word philia, from which we get the term Philadelphia. It means brotherly love. Hence, Philadelphia is the city of brotherly love, unless you've ever been there for an extended period of time. (laughs) The third Greek word is eros, from which we get the term erotic. It means physical attraction. And then there is a fourth Greek word, which is the highest form of love. It's agape or agapeo. And it literally means a self-sacrificing, self-emptying kind of love. It's the highest love in the Bible. It is the love that is used in John 3.16, where God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Gave him to what? To the end of the cross. That's the finest, that's the highest form of love. Incidentally, of all those four words, there's only one that is not used anywhere in the New Testament. 
Eros is never used anywhere in the New Testament. And I say that's interesting because in our culture today, which form of love is depicted more than anything else on television or in the movies? It's Eros, isn't it? It's that physical attraction. It's those 50 shades of gray. That is not biblical love. It's not biblical love at all. But what's interesting here is that when Jesus turned to Simon, and of course this is a restoration, one of the things that Jesus says to Peter is he says, do you love me? And in the Greek, when he asks that question the first time, he uses the word agapeo. Because Peter had said to him, I love you. I love you enough to do what? To go to prison and to die with you. And Jesus said, I tell you the truth, before the cock crows, you'll deny me three times. Not me, Lord. I'll go with you to prison even to death. That's what he said. I have that agape love for you. Well, now Jesus, after the resurrection, after everything has been turned around, turns to Peter in front of all the rest, and he asks the question, do you love me? With that kind of self-sacrificing, self-emptying love. And what does Peter say? He said, Lord, you know that I love you. But here's what's interesting. When Peter responds in the Greek, he does not say, I agape you. Jesus asked him, do you agape me? And Peter responds with phileos. Lord, I love you like a brother. And so the conversation goes on a little bit more, and Jesus turns to Peter and says, Peter, do you agape me? And everybody's looking at Peter. And Peter says, yes, Lord, I love you, but he uses phileos again. I love you like a brother. And the third time, Jesus asks him, do you love me? And what word does Jesus use? He doesn't use agape. That was a trick question. (laughs) Jesus uses the word phileos. Peter, do you love me like a brother? And Peter was grieved. And he turns and he says, Lord, you know I love you like that. What Jesus was doing was he was saying to Peter and he's saying to us, we make great boasts sometimes in our lives. We make great promises. Promises that we intend to keep. But the road to hell is paved with what? Good intentions. And what we are being taught and what Peter was being taught that was that he could not do it in and of his own strength. And you and I cannot do it in and of our own strength. If we are going to do it, we can only do it how? By relying on the grace and the mercy and the power of God, the Holy Spirit. That is the only way that we can do it and live the life that is pleasing to the Lord. And so Jesus, in restoring Peter, has to sort of bring him to his senses once and for all. He has to say to you, Peter, I'm not done with you, but in order for me to use you, you've got to realize that you cannot do this. You have no power in and of yourself to help yourself. So do you love me with that love that loves enough to die? And Peter now has been brought to the point where he realizes he cannot lie to Jesus. Jesus is the one unto whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and the one from whom no secrets are hid. And so he says, Lord, you know I love you like a brother. I wish I loved you more. Jesus turns to him a second time and he says, do you love me? With that love enough to die. And Peter, with tears in his eyes, I imagine, turns and he says, Lord, I want to love you like that, but I know I don't. There's no use lying to you. You know it all. And the third time, Jesus comes down to Peter's level and he says, Peter, let me just ask you a question. 
Do you love me like a brother? And Peter says, Lord, you know I love you like that. Make it something greater. And Jesus turns to him and he says, all right, Peter. Now we begin. Follow me. And that is what we see Peter doing here in the book of Acts. We see him following Jesus. Not relying anymore on his own power. Not relying anymore on his own intellect. Not relying anymore on Peter. Bar Jonah. We find him walking in the footsteps of Jesus. Trusting Jesus. When he goes to heal somebody, he does it how? As Jesus would do it. Not as Peter would do it. And we see this man growing. to Become the man upon which Christ would build his church. What we see here in this latter part of Acts chapter 9 is a man following in the Lord's steps, growing in grace, and changing the world. Let me tell you, God can do the same thing with us. God doesn't call perfect people, people who've got it all together, people who make great boasts and never fall. God chooses people that realize their own frailty, their own fallenness, their own sinfulness, and they stop relying on their own strength. And they put their whole trust in Him. And that's when He takes ordinary men and women and He uses them to do extraordinary things. And the rest of the book of Acts is all about that. The tremendous change that Christianity would bring to the world. And what a difference it did bring. You know, in the ancient world, there were doctors, but they were not doctors in the proper sense. We've already seen that this poor woman suffered under the care of the physicians of her day. You know, many people argue that George Washington died as a result of extensive bleeding. (laughs) Because in the 18th century, that's how they cared for people who had fevers. The belief was that you had too much blood in your body, that's why you were flushed. So what we do is we're going to bleed you. Aren't we thankful for hospitals and doctors today? The first doctors, the first hospitals came about as the result of what? As a result of the Christian movement. People went out in the name of him who was the great physician. They followed in the Lord's footsteps. There were no orphanages in the ancient world. A child, when a child was born, was brought to the parent, to the father in a Greek or Roman home. And if the parent took that child in his arms, the father, the child was received. But if the father decided that he already had too many children, he would refuse the child and it would be placed out on the street, exposed to the elements to die. There were no orphanages in the ancient world, no places for widows or for orphans. What changed that? Christianity changed that. People walking in the footsteps of their master who said, Let the little children come unto me and forbid them not, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. There were no place for lepers in the ancient world. They were unclean, outcasts. But in other parts of the world, South America and so forth, these things appeared, and they appeared as the result of the Christian church because Jesus cleansed the lepers on the border of Samaria. There were no disaster relief agencies in the ancient world. 
people there in Athens never got together and said, we've got to help out those people who've suffered an earthquake in Ephesus. All of the disaster relief agencies, the Red Cross, organizations like that were formed by people who were following in the footsteps of Jesus. There was no real form of education in the ancient world. Plato and Socrates had their schools, it is true, but there was nothing what we would call common education. Christianity would bring that to pass. Ordinary people, fallen people, but people who yielded their lives to Jesus Christ, who followed hard after him, and who changed the world. Let me ask you a question this morning, or this afternoon, I guess. What's Jesus calling you to do today? You may think to yourself, I'm not the kind of person that can do anything great. Well, either was Peter. But when we stop relying on ourselves, on our own resources, on our own abilities, and we begin to rely on the limitless resources of God, He uses us, ordinary people, to do the most extraordinary things, to follow hard after Him wherever He may lead, and to change the world. May we learn the lesson that Peter learned and follow hard after the Master. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise for the life of the Apostle Peter. We thank you that Luke did not go on to just tell the story of Paul, but brought us back to Peter. To remind us that Peter was also at work in these early days, making a difference among the Jews and also, as we shall see, among the Gentiles. We thank you, Lord, that you don't call perfect people, that you redeem imperfect people and use them for your glory and honor. Touch our lives, touch our hearts, purge away any dross, any impurities that there may be, and make us pure and spotless, an instrument mighty in your hand. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Oh, yeah. Before they asked me. Yeah. Yeah.